Chapter 2 To Jaleel and his wives, I was a poke root, a mugwort. You too. And you weren't even born yet. What's a mugwort? Miriam asked. A weed, Nana said. Something you rip out and toss aside. Miriam frowned internally. Jaleel didn't treat her as a weed. He never had. But Miriam thought it wise to suppress this protest. Unlike weeds, I had to be replanted, you see, given food and water on account of you. That was the deal Jalil made with his family. Nana said she had refused to live in Harat. For what? To watch him drive his Kenichi wives around town all day? She said she wouldn't live in her father's empty house either, in the village of Goldaman, which sat on a steep hill two kilometers north of Harat. She said she wanted to live somewhere removed, detached, where neighbors wouldn't stare at her belly, point at her, snicker, or worse, yet assault her with insincere kindnesses. And believe me, Nana said, it was a relief to your father having me out of sight. It suited him just fine. It was Mushin Jalil's eldest son by his first wife, Kahida, who suggested the clearing. It was on the outskirts of Goldaman to get to it. One took a rutted, uphill dirt track that branched off the main road between Harat and Goldaman. The track was flanked on either side by knee-high grasses and speckles of white and bright yellow flowers. The track snaked uphill and led to a flat field where poplars and cottonwoods soared and the wild bushes grew in clusters. From up there, one could make out the tips of the rusted blades of Goldamon's windmill, and on the left and on the right, all of Herat spread below. The path ended perpendicular to a wide trout-filled stream, which rolled down on the Safig Ko Mountains surrounding Goldamon. Two hundred yards upstream, toward the mountains, there was a circular grove of weeping willow trees. In the center, in the shade of the willows, was the clearing. Jalil went there to have a look. When he came back, Nana said, he sounded like a warden bragging about the clean walls and shiny floors of his prison. And so, your father built us this rat hole. Nana had almost married once, when she was fifteen. The suitor had been a boy from Shinidand, a young parakeet seller. Miriam knew the story from Nana herself, and though Nana dismissed the episode, Miriam could tell by the wistful light in her eyes that she had been happy, perhaps for the only time in her life. During those days, leading up to her wedding, Nana had been genuinely happy. As Nana told the story, Miriam sat on her lap and pictured her mother being fitted for a wedding dress. She imagined her on horseback, smiling shyly behind a veiled green gown, her palms painted red with henna, her hair parted with silver dust, the braids held together by tree sap. She saw musicians blowing the shanai flute and banging on dull drums, street children hooting and giving chase. Then, a week before the wedding date, a djinn had entered her nana's body. This required no description to Miriam. She had witnessed it enough times with her own eyes. Nana collapsed, Nana collapsing suddenly, her body tightening, becoming rigid, her eyes rolling back, her arms and legs shaking as if something were throttling her from the inside, the froth at the corners of her mouth, white, sometimes pink with blood. Then the drowsiness, the frightening disorientation, the incoherent mumbling. When the news reached Shinidad, the parakeet seller's family called off the wedding. They got spooked. That's how Nana put it. The wedding dress was stashed away. After that, there were no more suitors. In the clearing, Jalil and two of his sons, Farhad and Musin, built a small kolba where Miriam would live for the first 15 years of her life. 
They raised it with sun-dried bricks and plastered it with mud and handfuls of straw. It had two sleeping cots, a wooden table, two straight-back chairs, a window, and shelves nailed to the walls where Nana placed clay pots and her beloved Chinese, Chinese tea set. Jaleel put in a new cast-iron stove for the winter and stacked logs of chopped wood behind the colba. He added a tandoor outside for making bread and a chicken coop with a fence around it. He brought a few sheep, built them a feeding trough. He had Farhad and Musin dig a deep hole a hundred yards outside the circle of willows and built an outhouse over it. Jaleel could have been hired laborers to build the colba, Nana said, but he didn't. His idea of penance. In Nana's account of the day that she gave birth to Miriam, no one came to help. It happened on a damp, overcast day in the spring of 1959, she said, the 26th year of King Zahir Sa's most uneventful 40-year reign. She said that Jalil hadn't bothered to summon a doctor or even a midwife, even though he knew that the jinn might enter her body and cause her to have one of her fits in the act of delivering. She lay all alone on the colba's floor, a knife by her side, sweat drenching her body. When the pain got bad, I'd bite on a pillow and scream until it was uh, until I was hoarse. And still, no one came to wipe my face or give me a drink of water. And you, Miriam Joe, you were in no rush. Almost two days you made me lie on that cold, hard floor. I didn't eat or sleep. All I did was push and pray that you would come out. I'm sorry, Nana. I cut the cord between us myself. That's why I had a knife. I'm sorry. Nana always gave a slow, burdened smile here, one of lingering recrimination of or reluctant forgiveness. Miriam could never tell. It did not occur to young Miriam to ponder the unfairness of apologizing for the manner of her own birth. By the time it did occur to her, around the time she turned ten, Miriam no longer believed the story of her birth. She believed Jaleel's version, that though he'd been away, and he'd arranged for Nana to be taken to a hospital in Herat, where she had been tended to by a doctor. She had lain on a clear, proper bed in a well-lit room. Jaleel shook his head with sadness when Miriam told him about the knife. Miriam also came to doubt that she had made her mother suffer for two full days. They told me it was all over within an hour, Jaleel said. You were a good daughter, Miriam Joe. Even in birth, you were a good daughter. He wasn't even there, Nana spat. He was in Tai Safar, <laughs> horseback riding with his precious friends. And when they informed him that he had a new daughter, Nana said Jaleel had shrugged, kept brushing his horse's mane, and stayed in Tahi Safar another two weeks. The truth is, he didn't even hold you until you were a month old, and then only looked down once, comment on your longish face, and hand you back to me. Marion came to disbelieve this part of the story as well. Yes, Jaleel admitted he had been horseback riding in Tai Safar, but when they gave him the news, he had not shrugged. He had hopped on the saddle and ridden back to Herat. He had bounced her in his arms, ran his thumb over her flaky eyebrows, and hummed a lullaby. Miriam did not picture Jaleel saying that her face was long, though it was true that it was long. Nana said she was the one who'd picked the name Miriam because it had been the name of her mother. Jaleel said he chose the name because Miriam, the tuberose, was a lovely flower. Your favorite, Miriam asked? Well, one of, he said and smiled. 